You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. That we have to go through that. We've had that hanging over us now from the very, very beginning. And yet the other side, they don't even bother looking. And the other side is where there are crimes. It's an interpretation, certainly, but is there any chance at all that President Donald Trump has a point? My guests Jeffrey Howard and Florence Biederman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Mark Zuckerberg's weird visit to the European Parliament, an attempt by France to turn the Me Too movement into law, and the European country which is about to find out if free public transport will work. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Geoffrey Howard, lecturer in political theory at University College London, and Florence Biederman, Agents France Press London's bureau, Agents France Press's London bureau chief, getting his possessive s's around the wrong way already. A flying start. Welcome both to the program, and we will start tonight in Washington D.C., where U.S. President Donald Trump has not, for the first time, nor doubtless the last, been tweeting furiously about the witch hunt of which he believes himself the victim. Not for the first time nor doubtless the last, this has prompted a renewed measure of angst in some quarters about the ongoing work of special counsel Robert Mueller and what it may reveal, and more pertinently, when. Mueller has now been on Trump's case a little over a year, long enough for at least a few kite-flying columnists and indeed radio programmes to ask, what if he doesn't find anything? Well, we've had a partial answer to this with some breaking news in just the last few minutes. Uh, Jeffrey, I'll ask you first. The BBC reporting that Donald Trump's personal lawyer received a secret payment of at least $400,000, some saying $600,000, to fix talks between Ukraine's president, uh, Pedro Poroshenko, and Donald Trump last year, which is to say while Donald Trump was president of the United States. Now, Michael Cohen is denying this uh, furiously, no doubt, uh, as are the two Ukrainians said to have opened the back channel, but the BBC seem fairly confident of their sources. Um, If true... Uh, That sounds bad, doesn't it? This sounds really, really bad. It sounds bad for Michael Cohen. And if it's bad for Michael Cohen, it's it's bad for the president because Michael Cohen has been working with the Trump people for a very long time. And he probably all knows all sorts of things about what the Trumps have been up to over the years. And so it's definitely the case that special counsel Robert Mueller is putting pressure on Michael Cohen um, to try to cooperate uh, in exchange for not pressing criminal charges. And there's no doubt that if this story is true, if... Michael Cohen did accept a huge payment of something like 300,000 pounds from the leader of Ukraine Ukraine to arrange back-channel talks with the president. Um, there's going to be all sorts of questions about what kind of criminal activity he might have been engaged in in doing this. So this is this is not good for Trump whatsoever. Uh, Florence, there's been another story floating around this week that a longtime associate of Michael Cohen has pleaded guilty to tax fraud in New York State in a deal with New York prosecutors, uh, which suggests to some that uh, this long-term associate of Michael 
Michael Cohen is about to flip on Cohen and that therefore Cohen may flip on Trump. Is Cohen, as far as we understand it, really the trigger now to the whole thing? If he if he gives up Trump, the whole thing's over, isn't it? As Jeffrey says, uh, Cohen is the one who knows everything. It could be. I mean, it's a definitely a dangerous situation uh, for Trump. But as you said, like uh, Mueller has been working over more than a year now, so I don't know if you can really expect a, a big breakthrough or if it's just like a situation where piece by piece something is building up. But Jeffrey, are people being unduly impatient with Robert Mueller? Because measured against other investigations into presidents and other senior officials, a year is not that long. Uh, and it's not like nothing so far has come of it. 17 indictments, five guilty pleas. That's exactly right. I think Robert Mueller is keeping one eye on the politics, but only one eye on the politics, because he's a prosecutor and he's definitely trying to go as slowly as possible, trying to make sure he finds out as much as possible. So I don't think Donald Trump Jr., for example, or Jared Kushner should rest easy. Um, in the fact that they haven't had a subpoena yet. In fact, that might suggest that they're one of the, the targets of the criminal investigation. And so I think if they get subpoenaed, it's only going to be because uh, Robert Mueller has figured out everything he thinks he needs to know uh, so that he can then try to catch them in a lie. Uh, and so I think that people are being impatient when they expect him to wind this up. He's he's pursuing this in the same way standard investigations of white-collar crime always work, which is working your way from the bottom up, trying to press people to flip on their superiors and then trying to press those people to flip on their superiors until you get to the very, very top. And he's being extremely meticulous and deliberate about it. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, Florence, has there, I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of, of wish thinking invested in Robert Mueller's investigation by a great many people, those who would prefer the Trump experiment to be brought to a close, uh, perhaps before the American electorate can do it. Um, because of that, because there's been so much focus on this investigation, has there actually been a tendency to forget just the day in, day out corruptions, incompetences and nonsenses of the Trump White House? Is there actually an argument that this investigation is kind of working for Trump? Because as long as it's there, he can just point at it and say witch hunt. Yeah, it's, it certainly plays plays in his hand, like with the, the kind of tweet he pretends being prosecuted. prosecuted. Uh, I think maybe this is the case for the American people. Uh, I would say from our outside, like uh, it, it doesn't make n- nobody forget about all the flaws of Trump, the fact that he's denouncing one after the other, all the agreements uh, Obama had built on Iran and climate. I mean, internationally, I, I don't think it plays a role, but internally, yeah, it, it, it can't. I mean, Jeffrey, you said he's keeping at least one eye on the politics, which obviously he has to do. Uh, a CBS News poll uh, recently, which I assume was fairly reliable, though I very much hope wasn't, uh, suggested that 53% of Americans believe that the Mueller investigation is politically driven. Is that also potentially a reason why it's taking so long that Robert Mueller knows that he absolutely has to have this absolutely cold uh, if there's something there? And I guess even then you've got to contend with the fact that I mean, there will be tens of millions of Americans who will just flatly refuse to believe it, even if, you know, I I don't know what kind of evidence you could come up with, like a a signed letter from Donald Trump saying, let's collude with Russia. Exactly. I mean, he's he's trying to find the audio tape where Donald Trump's on the phone with Vladimir Putin calling ordinary Americans stupid, right? And and until he finds that, (laughs) he's going to be really reluctant. I'm not sure I'd be willing to bet money against that existing. (laughs) Well, quite quite possibly. But I I think that's that's right. If he needs to, if he's going to go after the big guy, he needs something really convincing. So we know that people supported Nixon very far along the way up until the very last minute. And they only turned when it was very, very
very clear that Nixon uh, was only out for himself and wasn't um, supporting the country. And Trump supporters, his base, still very much sees Trump as their man, someone advocating for their interests and their values. And I think this shows up in the numbers um, that you mentioned from the CBS poll. Look, I think we have to face the possibility that even if Mueller finds something on Trump, what's that going to mean? Well, He's not going to press criminal charges against Trump. A lot of constitutional law people will say that it's not. A, a, the Supreme Court certainly haven't recognized the authority to prosecute the president for a criminal offense. At best, what Mueller could do is release a report that says the president has probably engaged in criminal activity. And so then what happens? Well, then it goes to Congress for impeachment. But even if Democrats win the midterm elections in a huge wave, you still need two thirds of the Senate to kick Trump out of office. Um, so you'd need a lot of Republicans to defect uh, and go against the president. And based on how Republicans have been behaving, that's highly unlikely. Uh, Florence, just a final thought on this. And this is a it, it's a pet theory of mine. Is it possible that in a kind of weird sort of way, Trump is actually innocent in that while he may have broken no end of laws and committed no end of serious crimes, he's just too stupid and incompetent and clueless to understand what he's doing? Well, I mean, this is a possibility. He may have had some connection with Russia, like he was desperately trying uh, to build his Trump Tower in, in Moscow for a while. So obviously, at the minimum, he has kind of uh, dangerous acquaintances. Uh, whether it will finally end up with, with kind of something really more serious and incriminating, yeah, remains to be seen. Um, I mean, you, you, you cannot be convinced of that be before uh, the end of the investigation. As you say, yeah, it's a long investigation. If it lasts like another two years, so, so, so what would be the point in the end? Okay, well, let's move along uh, to interactions between Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and Earthlings. They are traditionally awkward, and yesterday's appearance before European Parliament was no exception. MEPs were concerned, as many people reasonably are, that Facebook has deviated from its core task of enabling us to stay in touch with people we stopped caring about years ago and become the most efficient machine ever devised for the dissemination of propaganda, balderdash and assorted flimflam. Zuckerberg apologised, as has become traditional and promised to do better ditto. Um, Jeffrey, is this apology tour doing Zuckerberg and Facebook actually any good? No, I don't think so. There was a story a, a year or so ago about Zuckerberg going around to different truck stops in Ameri America to chat to ordinary people, and it was clearly an attempt <laughs> by him to try his hand as a bit of politics. And, and boy, in, in an <laughs> era in which authenticity is the coin of the realm, Zuckerberg's not going to do very well. And I think this is showing up um, in him coming over here. The, I think the best part of the hearings was when Nigel Farage chimed in at one point and basically thanked Zuckerberg for making Brexit and Trump possible um, by saying, oh, we really couldn't have done this without you. And Zuckerberg was stunned by this, had no idea how to respond. Uh, he's not very good on his feet. And I think his performance in front of the European Parliament was pretty unimpressive. And there's good reason that a lot of members of the European Parliament were really disappointed. Um, I, di I did want to ask or talk about that, Florence, that, that comment by Nigel Farage, the former leader of UKIP. He may be leader again of UKIP since we, I started writing the script. I, I do have difficulty keeping up. But he, di he did tell uh, Zuckerberg that without Facebook, Brexit and Trump could not have happened. Is that true? Well, everybody acknowledge uh, fake news and the circulation of fake news uh, have certainly played a role. Uh, this is what is at the heart of uh, this uh, apologies he's making, uh, not only for breaching uh, uh, the confidentiality of data, but really for having creating this system with the free circulation has uh, allowed like the Russians to interfere in campaigns. This has been proven already. So uh, definitely it has played a role. I mean, and yeah, the answer of Zuckerberg to this is, is just uh, indeed very poor and uh, 
I think also his personality is not somebody at ease, uh, obviously, which is what the world discovered. You know, somebody connecting people is, seems so shy and ill at ease uh, when connecting with, with others and defending the fact to connect the others that it, it has definitely played against him too. I, I mean, Jeffrey, should Zuckerberg be worried that some sort of reckoning is coming? One of the MP, MEPs uh, who spoke to him, Manfred Weber, suggested that, that Facebook was a monopoly and that perhaps uh, thought should be given to breaking it up accordingly. I think it's definitely possible. Um, I would much more anticipate Europeans taking action against Facebook than uh, the United States taking action against Facebook. I mean, I think he's he's clearly worried about this. I mean, he's every sentence he says has been carefully crafted by his people. Um, he told the European Parliament that he'd get back to them with carefully written answers to their questions. So he's he's really doing his due diligence um, to make sure that he he tells people what they want to hear here. Because I think he he is is quite worried about it. I mean, guy. Uh, Verhofstadt, the uh, the Belgian MEP, um, uh, was pretty aggressive in questioning um, uh, Zuckerberg toward the end. And he, and he asked him, how do you want to be remembered? Someone who's enriched our world and societies like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates or the genius that created a digital monster that's destroying our democracies? And and, and you saw a kind of panicked look, I think, uh, behind Mark Zuckerberg's eyes when he, he said that, because I think this is exactly the question um, he is asking himself as he lies awake in bed every night, how is he going to be remembered? And I think that for the leader of an organization that's been praised for um, improving our democracies, clearly that's not the the general story we're telling about Facebook now. I mean, on that thought, Florence, that the EU might be more likely to regulate Facebook or take a harder line on Facebook than the United States, and I think that's a reasonable thought, is, is Zuckerberg's concern, or should Zuckerberg's concern be that I mean, all, all multinational corporations have to adjust themselves in different territories to comply with local laws, traditions, etc., uh, etc. Et but but people don't consume Facebook like they consume a soft drink. It is something they interact with, and its value is that everybody else in the world is on it. If if one part of the global jigsaw falls out of Facebook, could the whole thing unravel actually pretty quickly? I think that's what he's uh, fighting against with his, uh, his organization. Now, there is a difference of philosophy also uh, between Europe and the United States, which is obvious, like with uh, more regulation in Europe than in, in the United States. And it's also a question of, there is also a question of money. It's not only, you know, the ideology, the principle, uh, the trace you live in history, but it's also a tax problem. I mean, and this has been an issue on which uh, the European, yes, are, are working and they are going to, to do it more and more. Regulation, taxes, uh, yes, uh, I'm pretty convinced they are already working on it, and that uh, there will be, yeah, there will be a more regulated uh, Facebook in Europe. I thought one of the most striking things he said during it was, "quote Many of the values that Europeans care about deeply are values that we share too." And I, I couldn't help but think about, <laughs> I couldn't help but think about the word "many." So, what are these other values that the Europeans care about that that Facebook doesn't care about? He he didn't specify. I mean, is is there just a thing that? This, this looks like more of a problem than it is precisely because of that personal awkwardness of Zuckerberg that you mentioned, Florence. If there was somebody sort of, I guess, more breezy and at ease with themselves as the public face of the company, uh, would that make this easier on Facebook? Because the, the perception has become, thanks to these strange appearances by Zuckerberg, that the whole thing is a bit weird and unworldly and sinister. Yeah, I think it just reflects the reality of the problem, which is good in a way, you know. Would, would he be more, like, at ease or... Uh, uh, would he be kind of uh, more engaging? Maybe no. I don't. I don't think 
the, the issues at stake are too serious. That uh, I mean, it just reflects, again, uh, uh, an uneasiness and a, and a real problem for Facebook. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Geoffrey Howard and Florence Biederman. Do stay tuned. Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vin Italy, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Jeffrey Howard and Florence Biederman. Now, the international movement, which has become known as Me Too, has prompted a wide-ranging and doubtless overdue conversation about how women are treated by men, though it's difficult to avoid suspecting that the lessons are languishing unheeded by those men who most urgently need to learn them. We may now be starting to see some of the first Me Too-inspired legislation. France's National Assembly has passed a law which will introduce fines for catcalling and other varieties of street harassment. At the same time, the American photographer Margaret Robluski has assembled a photo project based around stories of harassment on the Washington, D.C. metro. Um, Florence, according to recent surveys, 83% of French women report catcalling or similar pestering when in public. Is the French law necessary? Yes, it is. I mean... (laughs) Uh, this is one of the consequences, uh, as you say, practical consequences of the Me Too movement, and and I think it's it's a great achievement, because uh, uh, when you see the number of women who pretend they have been harassed, uh, it, it's pretty uh, frightening. I mean, I don't know if you would have the the same uh, proportion in other countries. Hopefully not. So yeah, I mean, it's it's time to to legislate. Well, this is a question I did want to ask. Obviously, this sort of there's few countries I can think of where this sort of behaviour is no problem at all, that there are clearly some uh, where it's worse than others. Is it particularly a thing in France? Yeah, I would say so. Like being French myself, having lived in Paris and then uh, in London or uh, in in Germany, like in Berlin, th- there is a real difference in, in everyday life. You, you can feel it. There is kind of uh, uh, unlimited uh, uh, attitude. Like there, there is not this perception that it is something that can be punished by law, which is really a first in France. And you have seen also, like with this uh, letter by Catherine Deneuve and other women in France, that th- there is still a generation for which uh, anything that could be linked to something 
perceived as seduction shouldn't be uh, banished. So, you know, th- there is a discussion and there is an ambiguity in France more than in, a, in other countries, definitely. Just to follow that up, though, because uh, it, it, it is always interesting when a prevalence of any sort of behaviour, good or bad, is more noticeable in one place than another as to why. I mean, what do you think the reasons are for this being a particular problem in France? What's the, what's the sort of, I guess, cultural backdrop to it? The social acceptance. I mean, the the fact that uh, no limits have been uh, that it has not been qualified for for what it is. Um, the question, obviously, about a law like this, uh, Jeffrey, and I think we're probably all agreed that the kind of behaviour that the law is aimed at ending uh, is fairly objectionable. But is is a law going to work? So, I had two reactions when I saw the law. The first was. Um, like Florence said, what, a, what an achievement, what a great thing that some positive action is being taken against this. And then I looked at the language of the law, and it talks about speech that, quote, infringes the freedom of movement and women in public spaces and undermines self-esteem and the right to security. And then a set of skeptical thoughts across my mind, the same kind of skeptical thoughts I have about statutes banning hate speech. And I started to worry about, well, what kind of speech might be inadvertently caught up or prosecuted, right? Is the statute over-inclusive such that it captures a bunch of the speech we want to stop, but it also ends up condemning a lot of speech that we might not want to thought? And then I checked myself because I I read a book recently by a philosopher named Kate Mann who gives us a concept that she calls empathy. And this idea of empathy is this really heightened sense of sympathy that men seem to have for other men, this really intensified sense of concern that men have that, oh, maybe something will go wrong, maybe someone will be prosecuted, who really didn't mean it. You know, they were catcalling as a joke or something. And when you... Yes, it's true. Maybe this law will be over-inclusive. But when you compare that to the huge amount of injustice that women face all the time... The idea that Parliament would do, that the French Parliament would do nothing because of some concern of possibly um, uh, prosecuting speech that, that we ideally wouldn't be prosecuted, I think... Uh, is not a, a really major thought. I think we should support laws like this, but I agree with the sentiment, which is that the criminal law wouldn't be enough. But just to, to follow that up, though, where do you think this this kind of behaviour falls, though? Is it something that is akin to hate speech? I think most uh, reasonable countries have laws against, say, for example, just harassing somebody with, with, with racist or homophobic abuse on the streets. That's not on, and I think most people who live in those countries would generally agree with those laws. Is this akin to that, or is this more of a public nuisance, say, along the lines of smoking? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I mean, I like the hate speech model in part because I think that individual acts of hate speech, no single act necessarily does anything terrible. It's that the acts aggregate to produce a climate in which people who are members of the vulnerable groups um, feel that their equal standing in society has been compromised. Um, so some people like to use the term microaggression. And there's a sense in which maybe the individual catcalls, no individual catcall, unless it's particularly harassing, is going to make a huge difference. It's about the aggregation of all the different catcalls and living in a society where every time you leave your home wearing a certain kind of outfit or even not wearing a certain kind of outfit, you face a risk um, that you're going to be objectified by other people around you. And I think um, the wary here, right, is that no individual person engaging in a catcall is responsible for that whole aggregation. And so prosecuting a single individual for the whole crime strikes us as unfair. But I think the point is that everyone is responsible for doing their part to contribute to the creation of a climate um, that undermines 
the equal standing of women. Uh, and so insofar as men are now put on notice <laughs> because of the existence of this law, they know to be careful. And, and all you need to do to avoid being prosecuted is to avoid engaging in this kind of speech. Hey, Florence, there's a, there's a fairly standard response, which we, we've heard a lot of uh, since the, the Me Too movement became a thing. Uh, and you, you'll be familiar with it. It will be from a, a certain sort of man saying, well, where will this all end? Can I no longer tell a woman I like a new haircut without being hauled to the guillotine? Uh, is, is that going to be a, a common refrain in France? Possibly. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I... I... You asked the question whether it could be compared to smoking, which is really shocking to me because, <laughs> uh, well, there is something more, you know, like, I don't know if yourself, you have, uh, I could ask you the question, have you ever cat called someone in the street? I mean, the people I know, the men I know don't do that. So doing that is not just something like fun. Mm. It has never been fun. It has always been the idea that the person you had in front of you could be like, I don't know, treat it like that, or even, I don't know, and it goes further. It's more than a lack of respect. It, it's uh, the vision that you have some kind of disposable good. So this is uh, this is really what, what it is about. Yes, of course, there will be people saying, uh, again, I mentioned this letter by a French woman who was uh, uh, denouncing what they see as the exaggeration of uh, the Me Too movement, but in, in every progress, I mean, in every social progress, like be it citizen rights in the United States, what you will always have people who say, oh, it's too much. But it's too much for them, yes, but it's time it is too much. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, we look at Estonia, which is on the verge of actually ploughing ahead with one of those experiments much beloved of utopian fantasists. From July 1st, public transport across much of the Baltic nation will be free of charge. Fares on buses, trains and trans in Tallinn were abolished a few years back, at least for residents, but this will make Estonia the first nation to stop charging for a national network. Some caveats do apply. It's residents only, at least so far, and does not apply within other Estonian cities. Um, basically, Jeffrey, is this a good idea? I think it's, I'm pretty sympathetic to it. So public transport fees we know are pretty regressive. It's much more of a burden for poor people um, to afford them. Even in London, when we went from the, the system of using being able to use cash on buses to having to have an Oyster card or a debit card or a credit card. There was the wary that some people don't necessarily have a debit card or a credit card or can't afford to put a bunch of money on the Oyster card at one time. And this takes that insight to the next level. Um, really, it's a it, it takes the idea of freedom of movement very, very seriously, right? It's not enough to just have formal freedom of movement. We actually need to empower people to be able to move around the country, which just isn't a matter of, you know, paying for people's day away to the, to the countryside. It's about making it possible for people to go to that job interview or visit that sick relative without worrying about whether they're going to be able to afford to do it. And I think that's definitely a good thing. Um, would this work everywhere, though, Florence? The, the, the mayor of Paris, of course, uh, Anne Hidalgo, has suggested that something of the sort might be attempted in Paris. Is this something that really can only work in a fairly small, lightly populated country like Estonia? If you opened up the underground network of a big teeming city like Paris, is that not going to be asking for a certain amount of trouble? Mm, but Anne Hidalgo is asking for trouble, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that has been our policy, and there is also... Uh, certainly, there is the social aspect. There is also the environment aspect. She has been trying to to uh, diminish the number of cars in the city. She made many enemies in the process. So it's it's difficult at this stage to to know whether it's kind of a, 
a ploy or if really she, she intends to do this. She's, she's not in, in, a, in a very good situation. She's very much criticized. So it could be also a way to say, okay, I'm thinking of doing this because it's socially good, not only for the environment kind of. Uh, uh, so it's just a study that has been launched and it, it's difficult to think you can apply that yes, to, to such a big city as Paris with two, more than two million people uh, in Tramoros. I mean, there are cities, of course, that have small parts or parts of their public transport network uh, free of charge. In downtown Melbourne, the trams are free. I think I'm right in saying the same is true in Salt Lake City, though it's a while since I've last been there. Um, Jeffrey, as a general principle, though, should there be at least some uh, well, barrier to entry is probably not the right idea, but at least a, a token contribution you're asking people to make? Because it's one, it doesn't strike me as unreasonable, uh, especially if it is just a token contribution. And two, does that not therefore give people a sense that they are a, a, a customer and therefore that they are paying for a service which they should then treat with a measure of respect? That's a really great point, and I think it would be worth having an empirical study about what the results of this is in a particular jurisdiction. Does the amount of vandalism that happens, for example, in the underground go up as a result? I mean, it's not like we have to choose between the status quo pricing and then making it completely free. We could just make it cheaper, right? Which, is, which would also be a, a pretty good idea, too, right? I mean, I, I worried about a kind of unfairness objection that might be advanced by people who don't use the public transit. You know, why am I paying for all these people to go around for free? Um, I think you can reply to that if you show that the people who aren't who aren't using the public transit nevertheless benefit from a world in which everyone's using public transit. So you might think of the environmental benefits, for example. So it's true. Maybe I don't use public transit that often, but I, I nevertheless am benefited by living in a world in which people aren't driving their cars all around all the time because they're availing themselves of that free public transit. Um, but I generally am sympathetic. I think it's it's definitely something we need to be thinking about. And in terms of the incrementalism of it, why not start by making it cheaper? Well, there is also the argument, I guess, Florence, that that many countries, once people start collecting the state pension, um, they're allowed on public transport free or more or less free, but they're not likely to be the ones that cause the trouble, are they? No, I mean, uh, in London, for example, it's uh, it's uh, free uh, uh, over when you're over 60. So, yeah, th- there are already some kind of partial measures, but I think, yeah, kind of a big bang, uh, uh, like banning it in a city, that, that, that would... It's kind of a bit of a dream, but that that would be that would be something. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Jeffrey Howard and Florence Biederman, thanks very much for joining us here at Midori House. Uh, today's show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Entrepreneurs. More on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller, about to go and get on a very expensive tube train. Uh, thanks for listening. 